I'm going to read uh, two passages of Scripture tonight for an introduction to our lesson. The first one is from the 16th chapter of Matthew, and we'll notice beginning with verse 13, where the Bible says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I the Son of Man am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, so, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Another passage that we want to notice just briefly is found in the second chapter of Acts and verse 47. The Bible says in this place that uh, having favor with all the, uh, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Those are the two passages that will introduce our thoughts tonight as we consider this question, what happened to the church that began on the day of Pentecost? Before we speak, we certainly feel disposed to pray. And so at this time, let us humble ourselves while the one selected directs our prayer. In our study last evening, we studied about the Old Testament prophets and how they predicted the establishment of a kingdom which we identified as the kingdom of heaven or the Lord's church. And uh, the church spoken of that we read about in Matthew 16 and 18 and also in Acts 2.47 is the very same institution. It had the promise of Jesus' presence, for he said in giving the great commission, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. And it was conditioned upon the fact that they would teach all. He said, teaching them to, uh, to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. No group falling short of this can claim the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it was comprised first of the twelve. The Bible says that there were added unto them that day about 3,000 souls. It was not to be in Jerusalem only, however, for in Matthew 16 and verse 15, Jesus said unto them, Go preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Again in Matthew the 28th chapter and verse 19, he said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have uh, commanded you. In Luke 24 and verse 46, he said, Thus it is written, thus it behooved Christ to suffer, from the dead, uh, to suffer and, and to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Well, our question tonight is, what became of this church? First of all, let's notice what became of it under apostolic leadership. I'd like to point out that the church 
multiplied numerically. The verse 47 said, uh, having favor with all the people in the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Again in Acts 4 and 4, it says, Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. Again in Acts 4 and verse 32, the scripture says, The multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. Again, in Acts 6 and verse 7, the scripture says the word of God increased and the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And listen at this. A great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. It was reaching not only the common people, but also the priests of the Jewish people were affected by the gospel of Christ. But it didn't continue simply in the city of Jerusalem. In Acts the 8th chapter and verse 5, the Bible says Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. In verse 12 of the same chapter says, when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the uh, uh, kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. We also read how that Peter went to the house of Cornelius in Acts 10 and how that the upshot of that was, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And also in Antioch, the Bible says in Acts 11 and verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. We see the church also uh, as a result of the gospel being preached in Antioch and Pisidia, Iconium, Derbe, Lystra, Pamphylia, Perga, Europe, according to Acts 16, and then in Thessalonica, Phoenicia, Syria, Athens, Greece, and Rome. The gospel increased influentially, rocking entire communities and countries. And so we're not surprised to read that the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Back there in the city of Jerusalem, we read in Acts 5 and verse 28, that the authorities became alarmed and they forbade the apostles to preach the gospel, saying, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye fill Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. When the gospel was preached in Thessalonica, we read in Acts 17 and 6, And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. Someone has com commented that the world was already upside down, and the apostles preaching the gospel were simply trying to turn it right side up. Again, in Ephesus, the Bible says in Acts 7, 19 and 17 that there were sons, seven sons of Siva. Now, these uh, people uh, were sort of, had been magicians, and so they saw the success of the apostles. They tried to emulate that and were going around trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. Well, they came to a certain man who was possessed of a demon, 
And when they tried this on him, he said, Well, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are ye? And the man fell on these sons of Siva, and stripped them of their raiment, and caused them to flee from the house naked. And the Bible says in Acts uh, 19 and 17, This was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. There was also a riot in the city of Ephesus by the silversmiths because Paul preached that there was one God. And of course that made all the idolaters angry and uh, threatened their business. And the Bible says in Acts 19 and verse 23, that same time there arose no small stir about that way. That's the Bible way of saying that there was a great uh, right and confusion as a consequence of the apostles preaching. Verse 29 says the whole city was filled with confusion. Someone has said that when the early church preached everywhere they went there was either a riot or a revival. Today we have a meeting sometimes and uh, we report to the paper uh, that uh, no additions and we hope no harm was done. But I want to tell you when the apostles preached, there was an explosion, there was a revolution, there was a revival of interest in the cause of Christ. In fact, I want to point out that the most amazing spectacle of history from the human standpoint, the most inexplicable accomplishment of all time was the triumph and the growth of this early church. Think about it, friends. It was a small group, despised, uneducated, at least in the eyes of the world. They were unendowed materially. Most of them were something like fishermen, tax collectors, people from the common walks of life, and yet they went out, and in 28 short years, they could say that the whole world had heard the gospel. What became of that church historically? You know, we can read it being in all of those places in God's holy book. But some of my brethren have made trips to Rome, to Thessalonica, to Jerusalem, to those places, and they tell me that you don't find the Lord's church there today, but we know it was there. What happened to it? Well, after the death of the apostles, so long as the church was strictly adhering to their teaching, it remained exactly the same. We read there in Acts 2.42, the Bible says, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Again in Acts 20 and 7, we read upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26, we find the Apostle Paul setting forth the exact demands for the communion that Jesus left there when he observed it in the last night of his life here upon this earth. That doesn't mean that men didn't attempt to change and defile the church of God. In fact, Peter warned in 2 Peter 2 and 1, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Now listen to this. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, 
by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. False teachers coming in, drawing away disciples. Again in Second John, the seventh verse, we hear John saying, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ hath both the Father and the Son. And so serious is this matter. He said, If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Jude warns in Jude the first chapter in verse 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. However, those warnings, it seems, fell on many deaf ears and departures began to occur in the body of Christ. You know, I'm told that at one, at one point there may have been two million disciples at this point in time in the Roman Empire. You think about that. Starting from that little nucleus of 12 disciples, two million who claimed uh, Jesus Christ as their Savior. But soon departures began. You see, it was the Lord's plan back yonder in apostolic times for congregations to be established in every place. And that's the reason the apostles preached as they did. And in every congregation, as we pointed out the other evening in our study on the eldership, there was to be elders and deacons and saints. That's the organization of the church. You don't read about any other government except that. Somebody say, well, what about bishops? That's the same office as elders. What about pastors? Same office as elders. What about presbyters? That's the same office. This is the only offices that you read of in the New Testament for the local congregation. Elders, deacons, saints. Philippians 1 and verse 1. But you see, pretty soon, somebody got the idea, well, let's start another church over here, and let's let these elders tend to that one as well. And uh, pretty soon, when uh, another church was established, maybe, and another one, we had one over all of these as the bishop. And of course, after a while, it was divided into six different groups and one man was put at the head of it all. In fact, some tried to fashion the church after the government of the Roman Empire. You see, with the emperor at the apex of that. And that's the way some wanted the church to be designed. And I'm going to tell you what, there's a danger of tangents today. Each congregation, as the Lord conceived it, was independent and autonomous, self-governing, if you will. And there was no government organization beyond that local congregation. Well, of course, that developed, as we pointed out, into a government unknown to the Scriptures. 
The actual apostasy began with the Nicene Creed in A.D. 323, with the uniting of church and state in 325 A.D. The Pope was declared the head in 533, and by 666, the first universal bishop or pope was uh, announced, and that completed the apostasy. This was a going out from the church. This was a deviation from God's original plan. And so we read in 1 John 2.19, John said, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they no doubt would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. What happened to cause this division? You know, the Apostle Paul, before he died, he visited the church over at Ephesus and uh, worshiped there at Troas, you, may, you remember. And he called the elders to him. And this is what he said. Verse 28 of Acts 20. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves, to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. That's part of the reason that you don't find those churches in Jerusalem, in Antioch, in Thessalonica, in Rome, in Athens, and other places where our brethren have been and found no churches there like we know the Bible teaches. He said, grievous wolves enter in the uh, not sparing the flock. But then there's another reason. He said, also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. That's another reason that existed. Well, of course, this continued until that period known to history students as the Dark Ages occurred. That lasted from about 400 years after the establishment of the church to about 1400 A.D. And during that period of time, let me tell you that the Bible was forbidden to the people. Many things that are unknown to the Scriptures occurred. And through it all, I believe the remnant church existed. In Revelation 12, we have the picture, I believe, of the church. Uh, in uh, the first verse of Revelation, uh, uh, well, I should say Revelation 12 and 13, it says, And when the dragon saw that he was cast under the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. I believe the, the passage in consideration here refers to Jesus as the man-child because it's said that he rules with a rod of iron and Psalm 2 predicted that God's Son would rule with a rod of iron. By that, he means the inflexible commandments that were given in the Word of God. Again, uh, the woman described there, I believe, uh, refers to the church, but not just the church, to the community from which Jesus Christ came, 
that sacred community of both the Old Testament and the New. And then I believe the dragon is very clear because the Bible describes him as Satan or the devil. So notice now, the dragon was cast under the earth and he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. I like to point out that during the history of the church, terrific persecution occurred against God's people. In the early church, it was the Roman government that caused that persecution. They were put to death for their faith. Many were forced to recant and to deny the Lord Jesus Christ if it were possible to make them do so. Many, many gave their lives rather than recant upon their confession of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Someone has said that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the kingdom and the kingdom grew by leaps and bounds. But now it goes into the wilderness and next was the period of reformation. You know, I think that it must have been a happy day for the people of God when uh, the church was able to worship without fear. Early in the fourth century, something happened that changed the balance of power in the Roman government. Tradition claims that Constantine, who succeeded his father as the Roman emperor in 306 AD, saw the sign of the cross in the heavens. Whether that's true or not, we do know that he defeated Augustus Maxentius in battle in 312 AD and gave that as, uh, as his reason for his success and made Christianity legal in 313 AD and 10 years later, he made Christianity the state religion. Now, as we pointed out, when that happened, it must have been a happy day. But it was also a, a, a day of great danger to the people of God and to the church because the union of church and state ultimately produced unhappy results. The unholy marriage of church and state brought forth offspring in the forms of evil that cursed the church for a thousand years in the form of superstition, the papacy, purgatory, the confessional, moral corruption of the priesthood, ignorance of the masses because of an absence of any form of the Bible which were forbidden for them to read, the selling of indulgences and a thousand other errors that we could mention tonight. And without going into detail about the development of the apostasy, let us say that when Rome became enthroned in power, she began a period of persecution under the guise of Christianity more terrible than ever disgraced the annals of paganism. I know that many people do not know the history of the apostate church, but those who wish to see it in its true light have only to read the history of the Inquisition. That was a terrible ecclesiastical court officially styled the holy office for the detection and destruction of heretics. This terrible tribunal defied every principle of truth and justice. Its victim was arrested, kept in secret, never permitted to see the face of friend or foe, court or counsel, and was kept in innocence of the charge even that was against him. If he refused to incriminate himself, he was tortured unmercifully. And from the hour of his arrest until the hour of his execution, he never saw the light of day. A well-known example of that in, in uh, history 
is the massacre of St. Bartholomew when 30,000 French Huguenots were slain because they did not share the faith of the apostate church. In the 13th century, the Pope was at the summit of his power. He was independent of all kingdoms, ruled over body and soul with a force that was unknown uh, before that time. Hundreds of thousands were victims of his merciless reign, not including those who perished in dungeons or died of a broken heart. But did God preserve a remnant? I certainly believe that he did. I don't have time to go into all of that tonight. My problem is to try to describe to you in the short time I have how the reformation and the restoration came about. Let me point out that from the time of 1400 on, it was made famous by reformers. Brave men stood up against the errors of the apostate church. These in the person of John Wycliffe, who uh, let in the light on many heinous vices and abuses. And he attacked the Pope and was put into prison. He was the one who made the first translation of the Bible into English. And 44 years after his death, they, they exhumed and burned his bones and threw the ashes into the River Swift. I have, time would fail me tonight to speak of John Huss, Savranola, and uh, many other brave men. But one of the greatest was Martin Luther. When Martin Luther came on the scene in 1483, the Bible was a sealed book to most people. It was not permitted to be read by the masses. And Luther, to his great delight, found a copy in Latin in the library of the University of Erfurt where he was studying to be a priest. And uh, he determined to become a monk and was consecrated a priest in 15 and 7. Well, he saw a lot of things, but uh, it didn't deter him at first. And yet... Uh, he saw one thing that caused him to become outraged. He had visited Rome and saw some of the excesses there. But uh, in 1517, Leo X was in need of money to build St. Peter's in Rome. And his agents were roaming far and wide, selling indulgences to raise money for eggs, butter, corn, or cash. He declared that the people could buy forgiveness not only for sins committed, but for those they desired to commit. And when old John Tetzel approached for that purpose, Martin Luther drew up his 95 theses and nailed them on the church door, denouncing the doctrine that the Pope had power to forgive sins. Tetzel, of course, had to flee, and a wave of indignation swept over all Germany. Martin Luther stood before the Diet of Worms, and he made the most famous of his speeches, closing with these words. He said, there I take my stand. I can do naught else, so help me God. He performed a great service by translating the Bible out of Latin, the vernacular of the priests, and into German. Well, he, he said, call not yourselves Lutherans, but call yourselves Christians. Again, Time would fail us to tell of John Knox, John Calvin, John Wesley. All of these men made efforts to reform the apostate church. And they failed in that effort. You know what they did do? 
they started denominations. And pretty soon, denominations began to spring up all over the world. There were others who began to advocate the principles upon which the restoration movement was enunciated. You see, there were some men who saw the folly of trying to reform something that, is, that was so corrupt. Their idea was, let's go back to the Bible. Let's build on the foundation of the Word of God. And let's speak where the Bible speaks. And let's be silent where the Bible is silent. Let's call Bible things by Bible names. And above all, let's be Christians only. This was appealing to many people. These efforts were influenced by some leaders on the American continent. It should be remembered, Thomas Campbell, one of the leaders in the Restoration Movement, was a Presbyterian preacher who lived uh, over in Northern Ireland. And uh, he was a minister of the Antiburger, Old Light Antiburger Seceder Presbyterian Church. You think about this. Let me say it again. Old Light, Antiburger, Seceder, Presbyterian Church. When he left because of uh, his health and came to America, Alexander Campbell, his son, stayed on in Ireland. And uh, he made plans to come to the United States after he finished his education. And on the last Sunday that he was in Ireland, uh, maybe in Scotland. At that time, uh, he was a member of that old light, anti-burger, seceder, Presbyterian church. They passed the communion around, and he was given a token. This was closed communion. You couldn't commune unless you had that token. And he was so disgusted by the denominationalism that he took that token and laid it on the plate and got up and walked out. He came to America and he found that his father had already run into trouble. You see, Thomas Campbell went out as a preacher of this group. And one Sunday, he let some people commune who were not of the old life, anti-burger, seceder, Presbyterian church. And for that, he was defrocked. He was, he was dismissed from that church. And so... He started a little group that was called, uh, I think, the Christian Connection. About the same time, there were others who were advocating the same things that he did. A man by the name of Rice Haggard uh, in Virginia held up a Bible and said they were a Republican Methodist. And he said, brethren, this is the sufficient rule of faith and practice. We're, by it, we're told the disciples were called Christians, and I move that henceforth and forever the followers of Christ be known as Christians simply. In 18 and 1, this group changed their name to the Christian church. Elias Smith up in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, also began to state some of the same principles. Abner Jones joined this effort in 18 and 1, organized a church in Linden, Vermont, that rejected all human names its members insisting solely on the name Christian. Barton Stone in 1796 was at Cane Ridge, ordained to preach by this uh, by a denomination. And uh, he uh, later said that 
in reading the New Testament, he found that their principles did not agree with the teaching of the New Testament. And they wrote out the last will and testament of the Springfield Presbytery and determined that from henceforth they would simply be Christians only. Now I want to say something about uh, Alexander Campbell. Alexander Campbell uh, was noted for his abilities and uh, he became... Uh, he became associated with the Baptists at one point and finally uh, began to see errors also in their teaching. His idea was that the Old Testament belonged to uh, the Jewish age and that we're under the New Testament of Christ and he enunciated that principle and it was like a bombshell in the camp of the group that he was meeting with and uh, that caused a separation. But many uh, of his brethren still preached among, among these people. And uh, uh, Alexander Campbell uh, was a debater. He debated first. He had five great debates in which he set forth the truth. And uh, one of those debates was with Walker over the subject of infant baptism. You see, he, in talking with his father, they determined this, that they would be Christians only, that they would... Uh, speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. And someone reminded uh, Thomas Campbell, they said, uh, well, if we do this, this will mean the end of infant baptism because the Bible says nothing about infant baptism. And Campbell said, well, of course, if infant baptism is not mentioned in the scriptures, then we will have to give it up. And one of the men said, oh, I hope I never see the day that uh, we will say uh, that we will not quote the scripture, suffer little children to come unto me. But of course, that caused the, them to give up infant baptism and many other things that were consistent with the practice of that group. Now this debate that he had with Robert Owen, was, who was an infidel, attracted national attention. I want to tell you just a little bit about that. Robert Owen was a brilliant man, but he was, among other things, a socialist, and he believed in, uh, in having a, a, a group uh, after the communist fashion where they shared all things in a socialist movement, and he was a, not, a, a, an, an atheist, and he came to New Orleans and challenged all of the preachers to meet him in debate, and none would, and Alexander Campbell agreed to meet him. And in this debate, Owen expected Campbell to defend traditional Christianity and was greatly puzzled when he was forced to meet instead New Testament simplicity and purity. He had to use prepared manuscripts and they became less and less relevant. He finally conceded on Friday, April the 17th, the remainder of his time, and Campbell spoke on the evidences of Christianity in a speech that lasted 12 hours. The debate attracted national attention. Campbell acquitted himself so brilliantly that he was the sensation of the moment. He also had debates with uh, a Bishop Purcell, a bishop of the Catholic Church, and with N.L. Rice, who was a Presbyterian. And uh, in this last debate that he had with, uh, with N.L. Rice, the, famous, the famed Henry Clay was the moderator. And it is said that Henry Clay, who was supposed to be, uh, uh, you know, 
not uh, part prejudice to either side, when Campbell was talking, he began to nod his head approvingly and wave his hand and then caught himself and realized that he was supposed to be indifferent and looked around to see whether anyone had caught him off guard. Well, this movement that was begun by a host of these men uh, began to grow and swell. And about this time, a man appeared on the scene by the name of Walter Scott. And I want to tell you, this was a, this was a great day. Walter Scott was a Scotch educator. He had been baptized in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for the remission of sins by some. And uh, he uh, would uh, teach uh, uh, in school and tell his school children, come out tonight and hear me preach a sermon on my hand. And then he would, uh, he would drill his students on this. Of course, he would be... Uh, hanged, I suppose, today if he did this, but he said, now, uh, Jesus teaches uh, uh, repentance, baptism, uh, uh, faith, repentance, baptism, remission of sins, gift of the Holy Ghost. Now, you say it with me. Faith, repentance, baptism, remission of sins, gift of the Holy Ghost. The children would go home and say, uh, there's a man going to preach a sermon on his hand. This was called the five-finger exercise. And uh, the children would bring their parents, and uh, it resulted in hundreds of baptisms by Walter Scott. So many hundreds were being added that Alexander Campbell sent Thomas to examine Scott's results and was pleasantly surprised to find Scott using for reform a new element that had been lacking in his work. You know, it seems like that on one occasion, there was a, name, a man by the name of William Amen who came into one of the services. And uh, Mr. Amen had never heard a gospel sermon. And he had read in the scriptures how that on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached the gospel. And how he, uh, he uh, was preaching and men cried out and said, what must we do to be saved? And Peter told them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. Mr. Amen said, if I ever hear a man preaching that, I'm going to obey it. And that night when Scott preached that, Mr. Amen came up, interrupted the service, and demanded baptism at his hand. And that was when they saw that they could preach the gospel, set forth the plan of salvation, make an appeal for action and uh, have great results. That swept the uh, United States and this movement, which now included other leaders besides the Campbells, realized an incredible growth from 1849, I uh, should say 1830 to 1849. Do you know their number has been estimated in 1839 to be anywhere from 118,000 to 200,000? And after becoming the association's evangelist, Walter Scott's first sermon was delivered on that occasion when Mr. Amen obeyed the gospel. Now, he came up with this simple little formula for preaching the gospel. And it uh, was argued by some that the Campbells did not really take hold until Walter Scott began preaching on the Western Reserve and Barton Stone's Christian movement spread to Ohio. Well, all of this... Uh, was something that, that the, the cause of Christ needed. 
Campbell proved himself as powerful with the pen as in the pulpit. And then in Kentucky, there were men like P.S. Fall, Raccoon John Smith, John T. Johnson, the Crease, the Vardamans. We're told that Jeremiah Vardaman baptized 550 people in six months. Smith baptized 339 in six weeks. John Sechrist baptized 222 in 100 days. Others made the similar records as evangelists. I remember reading somewhere that a well-dressed gentleman ascended the steps of a county building in Kentucky, downtown Paris, Kentucky, and stood on the steps and said, Gentlemen, dog fennel, that's a weed, and Campbellism are taking the country. That was true also in Ohio. As Scott became evangelist for the churches making up the Mahoning Association, a tidal wave began to sweep through the churches. In the first year, there were a thousand conversions. And during the next two years, not only individuals, by the hundreds and thousands were saved from their sins, but entire congregations lined up with the ancient order of things. Some churches voted out the Philadelphia Confession of Faith and placed the New Testament in its place. Not only of that denomination, but also of many others. It, of course, uh, was inevitable that there would be problems, but they were very few. I want to point out one other man, and that is Raccoon John Smith. John Smith was a poor uh, individual who, who really was earnestly seeking salvation. And he would go to the churches and he would be so depressed because people would tell him uh, that he had to pray through, that he had to have an experience. And then when he told that experience that that meant that he had, uh, he had received salvation, he was just simply too honest to believe any such thing as that. And so for many years he was just drifting. He went to Alabama. And while in Alabama, he uh, rented a place and went off somewhere to preach, left his wife and his two babies at home. His wife banked the fire that night, put her babies to bed, went over to help a neighbor who was sick. And to her great sorrow, she looked out and saw that the house was on fire and her babies burned to death in the house. John Smith killed a horse trying to get home that night and it caused depression for both of them, ultimately leading to Nancy's death. And uh, the thing that bothered him was to determine whether or not those children were elect or non-elect. Because you see, the teaching that he had subscribed to, Calvinism, taught that God has determined before eternity who would be saved and who would be lost. If you're one of the elect, of course, you're saved and God will make it known in due time, they taught. And if you're not elect, nothing you can do could cause you to become elect. And of course, it just about worried him to death. And that's when he stumbled on to the restoration movement. He saw the error of the thing that he had been taught because Calvinism also rested on an assumption that the sinner is dead Dead in such a sense that he cannot believe the gospel or repent of his sins until the Holy Spirit comes to him and quickens him to life. 
Consequently, as all men are not brought to life, the Holy Spirit has to pass by some and allow them to perish, not on account of their greater unworthiness, but simply because God in His own good pleasure did not elect them to salvation. For these Christ could not have died, or else He would have died in vain, they taught. But John Smith saw the entire superstructure of Calvinism was error, and he preached against it, and was based on the notion that it destroys man's free moral agency, which it does. Calvinism, he reasoned, depends at last on the definition of a single term. What is death? What is death? Christians are said to be dead too, dead to sin. Does this death, he inquired, take them from the power of sin? Uh, take from them the power to sin? And uh, may they as free agents embrace error and do wrong? If then the Christian who is dead to sin can nevertheless do wrong, surely the sin, the sinner who is dead to righteousness may nevertheless do right. That's when he came upon the teaching of Alexander Campbell and saw clearly the teaching of the, of the gospel. They charged him with three heresies in the group that he was associated with, reading from the living oracles instead of the King James Version, saying, I immerse you instead of I baptize you, and allowing communicants to break their own bread instead of having the preacher to do it for them. He was rejected from the group that he was preaching for, and yet... He became a famous preacher in his own right, baptizing in excess of a thousand people a year for many years. Oh, I, I wish I had the time to tell you all of it tonight, but uh, I realize our time is growing short. What I have recited to you tonight is a matter of history. And let me tell you this, some have said Alexander Campbell started the Church of Christ, the Christian Church. Some even credit him with uh, establishing the Disciples of Christ as a denomination, and I certainly deny that. I deny that. It was never his desire to, to found a denomination. What he was trying to do is to go back beyond all of the opinions and the creeds and the doctrines of men and build upon the firm foundation of God's holy word. I think Alexander Campbell was a great man. But I want to tell you, he didn't start the Church of Christ. Let me just tell you this little incident, and I'm about to conclude here tonight. 1992, we made a trip to the old Cane Ridge meeting house where Barton Stone, Raccoon John Smith, and Alexander Campbell, and many other of the leading lights of the Restoration Movement preached. Out in the cemetery, there is a gravestone that uh, is marked member of the Church of Christ, 18 and 6. That was three years before Alexander, came to, Alexander Campbell came to the United States. Yes, I think Alexander Campbell was a great man, but I don't think he was any more honest, more sincere, or that he loved God any better than the others whose history I've recited here tonight. But I tell you this, he had the advantage of many of them because he was able to build upon their work. He lived 300 years after Martin Luther, 100 years this side of John Wesley. He had all that they taught. He had their experience. He had observed the fruits of their labors. 
He was able to size up conditions as they were, to locate the trouble, to diagnose the ail uh, that prevailed among the followers of Christ. And since the days of inspiration, I don't believe a greater than Alexander Campbell has lived. He was great in almost every sense of the word, and I appreciate him, but I don't wear his name tonight. I don't claim him as the head of the church because he is not. That's not because I want to reflect upon him, but there's a name that's far a thousand times greater than his name. And hence I prefer to wear the name of Christ our Lord rather than that of Martin Luther or Calvin or John Wesley or Alexander Campbell or any other human who ever lived. You may ask me tonight, did Alexander Campbell found a church? And I answer, absolutely not. Campbell denied such a thing. Let me review by saying, it was the purpose of Martin Luther to reform Catholicism, but by experience he found this impossible. It was the object of John Wesley to reform Episcopalianism, and likewise that was a failure. Alexander Campbell, together with a host of his co-laborers, certainly not by himself, never started out to reform anything. Their purpose was to restore that which once existed upon the earth, which had been buried beneath the rubbish of Ecclesiastes for hundreds of years. Now what they endeavored to do was to dig down beneath denominationalism, skepticism, plant again that which originated with the man of Galilee. Two principles they acted upon. First, they said, the crop of anything is produced proportionate to the seed that is planted. Second, according to the soil. They said, if we have the same seed that they had back in Bible days, and if we have the same soil that they had back in Bible times, we can produce a crop just exactly like the one on the day of Pentecost. Now, is that good sense? Is that possible? I believe it is, because listen, over in Luke, the eighth chapter, I believe it's verse uh, 12, it says that the word of God is the seed of the kingdom. Now, what's the soil? Why, the soil is good and honest hearts. Now, you take the seed of the kingdom, you produce, you plant that in good and honest hearts, and what can it produce? Just one thing, and that's Christians, just like those back yonder in the first century. They said, if we cut loose from humanism, from things of a worldly nature, and we'll put into the hearts of men and women the pure and unadulterated word of God, It'll spring up and make nothing on earth but Christians. And if those Christians thus formed and thus developed blend together, they will constitute a church like the one we read about in the Bible. That was the restoration of that thing that was started 20 centuries ago from which the early disciples departed and went out after the fancies of men. And if you believe these principles tonight, and you'll accept the terms of salvation as outlined by the apostles. Listen, you can be a member of the church that you read about in the Bible. Never join a denomination. Let Christ be your leader. Let his word be your guide. And the church he bought 
be your abiding place and the religion that he inaugurated your life's work. Faithfulness to those commands will guarantee you a home in that paradise beyond this veil of tears. I'm through tonight. I wish I had uh, two hours to speak on the restoration movement and the reformation, but we realize that we are limited because of many other factors here tonight. But I want to tell you this. Sort of like a black preacher said down in Mississippi one time, and I thought it was so apropos and so fitting. He said, listen, he says, the church is rock bottom. That's right, it's built on a rock. He said, it's blood bought. And that's right, because the Bible says in Acts 20 and verse 28 that he purchased it with his blood. And he said, it's fire proof. You think about that. It's rock bottom, it's blood bought, and it's fireproof. You ought to be a member of it tonight. And if you've never obeyed the gospel and you've never taken the steps that Jesus commanded, why don't you do that tonight? If you believe that Jesus is indeed the Christ of God, if you're willing to turn away from known sins, and if you're willing to confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you can walk right down this aisle and demand baptism for the remission of sins. And that'll cause you to be saved because Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. What happens to save people? Acts 2.47 says the Lord adds them to the church. Now, if he did that for people in the first century, wouldn't he do that for you tonight? Surely he will, because the Bible says God is no respecter of persons. If you're subject to the call of the gospel, or if you have erred in some respect and need to be restored to duty, do it tonight. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.